let's uh, get started here, as I promised, 12 o'clock sharp. We have 45 minutes, so we're going to get started here. What's happened here? It's got to warm back up, I think. There we go. Um, now I'm going to get it bigger for you. So we're going to try to do two things here. Um, somehow I get stuck with these huge uh, uh, assignments. Uh, and so I'm not going to try to do too much. Um, I'm, I'm, I promise when we got into the genres, it's actually pretty palatable. Uh, these are two, two three-page handouts. So, um, but we're going to do two. Ironically, the proverb, the probably the easiest genre, and the reason I'm doing two in one, the easiest genre is the prophets. And you're going, no way. But yeah, that's probably the easiest genre to to unclick. And the way I approach these genre studies is, I believe that every genre has a kind of magic key. And I've encouraged all of us who've been sharing this to kind of make sure we get that to you. There's a, there's a key here, you know, and if you've got that key, it unlocks the meaning. And I appreciated what Kevin said in the sermon today, especially the fact that, that God is knowable and he has revealed himself to us. And much of what we're trying to do in this course is help you believe that, uh, to see that, wow, on the one hand, you should come out of this class with a kind of, you know, there really is a rhyme to, you know, and reason to how you do read the Bible. You, you really can know the Bible and what it says because the Bible teaches us how to read it if we'll just take the time. The biggest issue with Bible interpretation, I'm convinced of it, is, is we've just gotten used to sound bites and, to, and bullets, and we, we don't have the time to actually read it. You know, we, we try to executive read it. And so hopefully we're giving you some clues that will help you know how to read it, and you won't spend so much time figuring out how to read it, right? So that's sort of where we're at. So... We're going to start with the Proverbs, but let's uh, begin in prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege of your word. It is an amazing grace that you have chosen to reveal yourself. You, ha- you are in need of nothing. Uh, you are already perfect. You are already uh, in communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so, Father, we're just what a privilege to, to know you and for you to reveal yourself to us in a way that we can know. And so, Father, help us now as we turn to these topics of the Proverbs and the Prophets. In Christ's name, amen. So when you think of a proverb, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Anybody memorize a proverb? What, what, did I hear something back there? Wisdom, good. You think of wisdom. What is a proverb? A wise saying, okay, and it's it's typically uh, thought of as being short, pithy, something you could memorize, you know, cliche almost. Um, and so it's true. Uh, they're wisdom sayings. We're talking about wisdom now. There are other wisdom literature in the scripture, of course, Ecclesiastes, etc. But um, we're going to focus on the Proverbs, as, as it's similar. Um, but but it's true, as Harris, one of the commentators, says, to think of the Proverbs as only consisting of proverbs would be misleading. If you mean by proverb what it means, which is this sort of pithy, short wisdom saying, uh, there's, there's more to uh, this, the proverbs than that. So, yes, it's a short, pithy saying, which assumes the status of truth. Um, but it's also uh, the word parable in the Greek Old Testament is, is used to just translate this idea of proverb. Parables, and there are parables in the wisdom literature. In, in Proverbs, there's parables. 
Uh, Jesus often told parables, and that is participating in wisdom literature. That's what he was invoking this tradition of telling a story uh, in a manner that would give you one short, pithy sort of thing. Now, that's one of the things, by the way, that a lot of people, you, I'm sure you're going to get to that. I think Kevin's going to be teaching the, uh, the Gospels. But um, I think the Gospels are the most uh, easily misunderstood and misread of all the Bible, actually. Uh, one of those, though, is the use of parables and confusing a parable with an, an analogy or allegory, I should say. Um, parables are not allegories. You know, not every single point has a hidden meaning. A parable is more of a wisdom saying in the form of a narrative or a story. It, there's, one, there's one point coming out of every parable, not five. There's one. And so that's really going to be important when you get there, but you'll see that in the Proverbs as well. Um, so it can, ex, ex, you know, can have this sort of didactic discourse or a teaching discourse. I mentioned uh, Romans 1, 8 through 19. Um, or a person or group of persons may function as a mashal, that is, a spokesman for wisdom. Um, and on it goes. So let me just read this quote. In the Old Testament, the proverb had a clearly recognizable purpose, that of quickening an apprehension of the real as distinct from the wish for, of compelling the hearer or reader to form a judgment on himself, his situation, or his conduct. This usage comes to its finest expression in the parable of Jesus. So, that's what we mean by a proverb, or the proverbs. It's really not just proverbs in the literal sense, is it? Any questions about said now? Just kind of open up a little bit. Um, some will view this as uh, a collection of what you could describe as common grace or general revelation, you know, coming out of the king's court. And it's true that there was wisdom, that is, wisdom common to all people of all faiths and none, and the wisdom of God that's been given to his, his church. Uh, this is a really important comment. I, mean, I want you to stop and think about this. We, again, s- start thinking in sacred, secular categories. And, and it's, there's a good use of that, cat- that, that distinction sometimes. But for God, wisdom is salvific, even if it is consistent with creation laws of nature. So... Uh, there's the two are coming together in the proverbs and that's i think a really important point so for instance we can agree that yes there's no salvation history in the proverbs but that's the that's one of the keys keep it in the salvation history interpret it with your salvation history we can agree number two that there's a lot of sayings there that would be derivative of just living life i mean just being an older wiser person gives you some wisdom because you have learned the way that the, 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 the creation is set up, right? So we can say that. It is that of the created world and the experience of it. God is very much a part of this perspective. And Yahweh is the only God that Israel rightly acknowledged. But the sages view the Lord primarily as a creator, not as a covenant partner. Now, see, I'm not going to go that far. But this is this view. And his cre- creative activity is seen as the basis for his kingship. So... Um, so we're going to want to say, yes, there's a creation component to wisdom, just, just, a, just the, what we call providence, and that providence and the way in which providence falls out instructs us, and there's that in the, in the scripture. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind, again, is this idea of, of the wisdom that is consistent with the law of God 
and therefore the kind of things that will, in the Proverbs, for instance, it'll say, oh, how I love thy law. You know, it is the salvation it'll talk about. So let's look, we're going to look at a couple of those. But just this quote here, I'm going to slow down. I'm just kind of dumping some stuff on you so we can then talk about it. The experiences of the world were for her, Israel, always divine experiences as well. And the experiences of God were for her experiences of the world. See, bringing that sacred, secular back together. They just didn't see it. And I think that's part of being wise. I mean, see, it's kind of like I'm begging the point. What is wisdom now? Talk to me. What is wisdom based on what, what Gert, this says right here? Isn't wisdom something to do with drawing into your life, God? It's drawing into your life the idea of God, the teachings of God, so that now nothing that happens to you and me, this is part of what makes wisdom wise, nothing happens outside of God. Everything is God. There is no dichotomy. There is no life outside of God for the, for the believer, for the Israel. And so what's really starting to happen here is we have what we call providence, divine action of God in our lives, coupled with the word of God, the law, and we bring those two together. That's what Christians do. That's what Jews did under the old covenant. We bring the two together, and that's the miracle of the Proverbs. It's, it's thinking about everything with God in it and of it. Um, so here again, I'll read another quote by Murphy. A distinction between the secular and the religious is not to be discerned in wisdom sayings. A proverb is not religious just because it mentions the Lord. It is religious because a sage's worldview is ultimately rooted in the Lord. Remember the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now let's talk about that. This is a good place to stop. We're going to go back to it a little bit later. But so, so I've rushed you into a thesis here that the key to unlocking the wisdom is to recognize that there is no sacred-secular dichotomy in your life, that everything is sacred. Everything matters, has meaning. And it gets to this question, what do you think it means? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do you think that means? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Nature all around us, just you know, everything we deal with, all kinds of relationships, every lifestyle. Yeah. So now we're asking the question: If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom starts with recognizing God is in everything. Okay, let's let's piggyback on that. That's right. Keep going with me. The fear. I mean, how do y'all feel about that word fear? Come on, we're gospel-centered around here. We don't fear God. Okay, reverence. And before we go jumping, what do you mean by reverence? Honor. Okay. I have no doubts that's part of it. Anybody want to embellish it some more? What do you think, Reeves? This is unfair. You went through our Proverbs study a couple years ago. Uh, no, you can I want you to do it. Yeah. 
you hear the power of him first you, and you uh, also honor and reverence the power that he has to bless you. So by hearing and truly placing him as the only source of that true power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. And what, what, yeah, good. So give me, can you, yeah, can you give me an example then in, in human life of fear, the, the way you're using it? Can you yeah, think so, of you know, I fear my boss. Okay. Because, uh, good. Very, you know, human, humanistic or, uh, humanly speaking, career perspective, mm -hmm. that boss has the power to bless or curse my career. That's right. So if, I, if I'm not respecting, honoring, fearing him or her, then, um, it's to my detriment, right? Yeah. Now, now I'm going to really start playing with you here. This is really important. Um, so, fear is, as you've said, respecting the power to curse or to bless. Um, what would be some synonyms for fear now? Conviction, okay, good. I mean, are we getting close to faith? What do you believe in? What, do you, what is it you believe in? That you put your hope and faith in. Whatever that is, you fear. You you understand that this is, this is the, you know, I mean, there are a lot of analogies, right? I mean, the, the, the father or the mother to a child. There's a kind of fear, but it doesn't mean the fear has no affection. It doesn't mean that there's not cuddly. There's, but there's a sense in which I know i got to be right with this person or my life is going to go bad. It just goes south. You know, if things aren't right with this person, this is mom and dad. They take care of me. They feed me. They tell me what food I can eat and what food I can't eat. And, I mean, on and on and on it goes. And yet there's a fear, but the fear is not... What what maybe it is certainly afraid. There is a real fear. I mean, but that's typically a, a pre. You know, that is a condition of what I am when I'm afraid. So when Dad would come home from work, and I had done something that I knew was wrong and got caught at it, like go into his drawers where he had all his sacred stuff. I don't know what it was. But he'd tell, don't go there. You know, but I went in there looking for You know, I can remember him coming home and he, you know, okay, I'm scared for dad to come home. I'm afraid. But, but see, that's just a subset because that fear is only insofar as I know I've done something wrong. I didn't fear dad when I was, when I hadn't done something wrong. In fact, I adored him fear. He was the guy who was, you know, I can remember literally, I mean, every kid does this. I know if you're an athlete or whatever, a, you know, a musician or whatever, but boy, who's the first person you remember growing up? Who's the first person you look for when you were doing something? Let's say you're doing a drama or you're doing an athletic event on the field. You're, what happens when you walk on the field? Do you remember? What do you think? Josh? Man, you, it takes one second, and I know where my parents are. Why? Because I want more than anything in the world for those people to be impressed. And I could tell even when I was watching my kids. You know, it was like within, I mean, literally, I would, sometimes I played the game in my head. You know, I'd say, I'm going to see how long it takes for them to catch a look up here. I mean, they would see it before, the, I mean, they'd be running onto the field and they'd, they'd find me. And I did the same thing I can remember. 
My father never liked to sit in the, the, the bleachers when I played football, and so he'd always sit over in the corner of the field over by himself, I think because he liked to smoke cigarettes and he didn't, didn't want to smoke in the corner. So there, man, I just, where's dad? You know, did he make it today? There he is. There is dad. You know, and the whole thing changed. See, that's fear. It's that sense of this is the most important being in my life kind of a feeling. And yeah, when I'm bad, I'm afraid of that person. But mostly, I'm, 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 everything that happens in my life, if I'm really, really into it, you know, I'm, I'm relating to that person. I, I mean, I've heard the, uh, the, maybe you've heard this analogy, but um, I heard it somewhere. I can't remember, but, you know, someone's playing a, a concert, uh, a recital, and uh, everyone, you know, stands up to give a standing ovation, but it didn't matter because the only person that, that mattered was his instructor. He's looking over there saying, did my instructor stand up or not? You know, it's that sort of fear. So this, this thing, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is a really big clue as to how to interpret the Proverbs. Um, so here's the wisdom of the law, the good news of wisdom. Have you noticed, by the way, the, the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now tell me, what is wisdom now? I mean, could you describe wisdom as salvation even? What, what do you think Paul meant when he introduced Jesus in Corinthians? He said, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God unto salvation. Christ is the wisdom of God unto salvation. In, in taking this idea that, pro, that the wisdom saves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to prosper, to be blessed, is to be right with that God. And the law now is part of what it is about that God that he's revealed that makes me wise. So to be wise is to be law-abiding, pretty much. Um, the law of God. Um, so here are some other points here. Uh, or that no wisdom can avail against the Lord. I mean, I, I give you some illustrations here. All this is online. You know that, right? And you can go and be looking at it that way as well. Um, so let's, let's, let's get you some. So, so this is the thing. Perhaps it is meant that since we are not all wise, God will discipline us by our unwisdom. Moreover, since we are sinners, we cannot perfectly correct the unwisdom of our ways. Thus the need for an all-wise substitute. Now see, where I want to take you, and this is one of the keys here, is when you read the Proverbs, you're going to read it like you read all of the Old Testament. And even the, pro, even, even the Proverbs, I mean, the uh, parables themselves in the Gospel. See, the reason why most people get the Gospels wrong is they forget it's, it's happening under the Old Covenant. It's, it's, it's executing the New Covenant, but it's still under the Old Covenant. Why? Because it's all happening pre-cross. He's pointing to it, but it's all, so much of the sayings is going to be sayings that a there's old covenant sayings, wisdom, exasperating people to say, well, who can set me free? Well, the Proverbs will do that. If you understand the Proverbs rightly, you're going to be exasperated to the point of no end. Who is wise? You're going to, you're going to come out of the Proverbs saying that. Who in the world is wise? Answer, Jesus Christ. <laughs> So therefore, many of the benefits that are promised in the Proverbs, like prosperity, direct you to heaven and the resurrection, 
even as we know that that prosperity of life that is being spoken of is going to direct us to the, to the wisdom that needs to be satisfied because it's telling you, it's, it's very works righteousness if you look at the Proverbs. And it's going to be telling you over and over, here's what wisdom is. And we're going to find out that, man, none of us are perfectly wise. So it directs me to Christ, wherein, as by putting faith in him as the wisdom of God, we then gain the, the blessings that are promised in the Proverbs and not the curses. So that's a Christ-centered way of reading the Proverbs. Very important. A couple more things, and I'm going to just kind of have an open talk for about five more minutes. Remember, I only have 45 minutes, and I've already used 20. Um, so parallelism. This is just a little bit of how to understand what you're reading here. Um, this is a literary device that you'll find often, not all the times, but often in the Proverbs. Um, what that means, of course, is there's two lines, uh, a two-line comparison. You know, something will be stated, and then it will be restated. It's really simple. But it sometimes can be synonymous parallelism, or it can be antithetical parallelism. Um, sometimes it can be put into the sandwich. You know, you've heard the uh, chiastic sort of uh, way of doing it where you have the A, B, C, B, A, whatever, you know, A, B, C, D, then C, B, A. You see what I'm saying? And sometimes you'll have that kind of parallels where there's a mirror. This has this coming down here. There's your point, And then it builds right back out, saying it again. So the two most, uh, the, the three most that you'll see, though, is synonymous, antithetic, and synthetic. Um, the second line repeats the first line. If you wanted to look at these, again, if I had more time, I would, and you can see it. It, it is just right there. Uh, so I'll give you some illustrations. Antithetic, of course, both lines say the same thing, but for, by the first line in contrast to the second. Now, here's the key. It's not saying two things, antithetical. It's saying one thing, one in the positive, one in the negative but the same thing. You follow what I'm saying? And then synthetic, uh, excuse the typing there, first line creates a sense of expectation, which then is completed in the second or third line. So the first line will say something, and you're saying, complete your thought, you know, or, or get me to, the, to the, you know, the idea here, and the next one will then complete it in that way. Um, this is the most basic form of poetic expression for Israel. And again, why do you think that is? This is predominantly what? An oral culture. You know, they didn't have books they were carrying around. And they certainly didn't have my precious smartphone, you know, that now is my brain. Um, so they memorized. And, these, and this memory, and I would encourage you to memorize Proverbs. It really is. When we did our Proverbs study, we were doing that. And it's really helpful just to have some of this stuff in there. But remember, remember, I, my biggest point today is what? Interpret it in Christ. Don't exclude it into some secular world. This is all very salvific within the redemptive history of God. Um, so I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, again, you'll see type of typology. If, this is where I'm going to have to reference you to the uh, covenant um, uh, discussion that we had. We had two weeks, remember, where I talked about the covenant? Remember typology? So, for instance, when it does promise peace and pure prosperity, we covered that, remember, in the covenant portion? You all remember that? Please somebody say you remembered it. Okay, well, uh, Hebrews is an example. You know, yes, there looks like a works righteousness in that typology 
period of Israel's history. But don't, we got to interpret, somebody let our food guy in. Thank you. Um, so don't, you, you don't, in other words, don't take the Proverbs out of the Bible. That's my point. Interpret it just the way you interpret anything else in the Bible within its redemptive historical context, within its covenant context, pointing you back to the covenant theology uh, discussion we had two weeks ago. Um, and it's always gospel-based. This is the passage I was quoting, 1 Corinthians 1, 20-25, where clearly Jesus is described as the wisdom of God unto salvation. He is going to be our wisdom. So here's some of the categories. This, and So if I were to study the Proverbs, you could do a study where you'd start with Proverbs 1 and go all the way through 31. But I would find that to be a very frustrating uh, way of studying it. Because you're going you're gonna to find that, this is a, that what collects them is not necessarily thematic. There's not a thematic arrangement in the Proverbs. It's who wrote them, maybe what circumstance around their writings, like the king's court, like the whatever. And so, so what I would pr- probably suggest you do is you do more of a topical. You, you take a, a passage like for, uh, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. By the way, what is that right there? What kind of a, what do you see happening there? Antithetical, right? They're saying the same thing, but, but all right. Um, and so you have this sort of thing here. Uh, and what is knowledge? And see, so you're going to have to do something. How does the Proverbs use knowledge? Is this a, see, I'm going to say don't get too far away from salvific knowledge. I mean, you'll see Proverbs that promise salvation, literally. And so uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What is this understanding? And you can see all this sort of stuff going on here. And there's just just tons of them. Truth and deceit, warnings about sexual morality, the tongue, discipline, pride and humility, of course, is always close to the fear. Think about fear. The the other side of fear is is humility, isn't it? Because it's acknowledging that I am not that powerful and don't control my, my fate as I think I do. So humility is huge. Listening to advice, instruction, Guarding one's company, marriage, cheerfulness, sovereignty over providence. Again, never sacred, secular in the Bible. Vanity of this life, knowledge of wisdom and its values. This is a, if you wanted to study for yourself, do a devotional, I would encourage you to take this handout and just start working it. Read these scriptures. Maybe memorize one out of every category. What a great thing to do, yeah. Yes, it's all online on the, on the course. Go to this course. So any questions about Proverbs? I know that's just flying, but I'm going to take 15 minutes to do the other. Yeah. 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 Right. That's right. Story's not over yet, but yeah. (laughs) I know, but that being said, yeah. 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 That's a great question. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Thank you. Um, You know, it's a hard question, honestly. Um, 
I think what will help you and us with that question is to keep in mind that this is, these are wisdom sayings that speak to the fullness of redemptive history. So to the degree that we should, we might need to be a little careful about reading it always in a individualistic one-on-one way as if, you know, I think there is a general, you know, so I, I mean, it, it may sound like I'm, you know, wassling here, but I, I think there's a sense in which that proverb rings true with respect to the power of the family, for instance, to give your, and, and there's generally, it's true. I mean, it's generally true. It's, it's basically our doctrine. I mean, here's where I would do that. This would be a great, I'm just pulling myself back, but. I would take that passage as a phenomenal passage to do it of a child's baptism. And I would say that, the, that the, the, what is happening in this baptism, insofar as a parent now, is taking heed to the wisdom to raise up this child in the Lord. Under and in the, the because of the fear of the Lord, my child's going to be raised in the Lord. And I'm going to access this child to all the means of grace that God has given this child as a member in good standing of this church. And so when you put that in through the baptism, see, you've done a redemptive historical analysis of that passage, and you begin to see, yes, our confession teaches that ordinarily, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but ordinarily, baptism saves. And that's how I'd interpret that. Yep. But always, 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 what is it predicated upon? Divine election. It always is going to come back to God. Esau, I love Jacob, I hate it. I mean, come on. Okay, it happens, but but generally that, in ordinarily, God uses the ordinary means of grace in, the, in with, and through the church. As a parent now is to to follow up on that proverb would understand in Israel there was no individual parent; it was a community of parents, and they were all parenting together in this covenant community we call the church. So that'd be huge, and that's a great example. Thank you for that. Good question. Anything else? Yep. I mean, yeah, it certainly should apply, but be careful how you apply it. Um, So in that case, for instance, uh, let's make sure what is being described. Let's say that you do get wealthy. Maybe I'd have to look at that proverb a little carefully right now, but maybe that proverb is calling to attention that to, to be wealthy is not necessarily a blessing. That, yes, wealth unearned. Wealth just handed down to you. Wealth that does not, under, does not have the context of, of, of building and working the, you know, and, and being blessed out of that work might be a cursed thing. And there's a lot of scriptures about the danger of spoiling a child, for instance. So you might want to, so the key to that question would be, how do I locate this proverb in the other proverbs? Is this an example of other proverbs that talk about, say, wealth unearned or wealth quickly given, and, it, and then I see another theme. That's why it's so important to put it in the themes here, because you begin to pick up a theme when you see that stuff happening over and over, and you go, oh, this is a bigger context here, and it's just one little piece. So I don't know that, but so yeah, I think you need to be careful to read it in context with redemptive history 
and in the context. But keep in mind, this is what blows your brain. We Christians, we're we're not anti-materialist. We believe that our destiny is a materialist destiny. We call it the resurrection. So I'm not I'm not I'm not at all nervous about those health, wealth, prosperity, theology texts. There are tons of them in the Proverbs. I'm just going to be careful that what I'm going to interpret it to mean is through Christ. We're talking about the bodily resurrection and heaven, which is going to be this earth, all flourishing. And I'm part of that flourishing. My body's part of that flourishing. And by God, we're going to get there. And how do I have permission to do that? Well, look at the way Jesus did, interpreted those Proverbs. Look at James. Those who are sick are to call the elders to pray. And then he starts talking about the resurrection as the answer to their prayers. You see, and so you begin to see the whole of redemptive history working out here. All right. Well, this is great. I wish we could do more. I hope it's a teaser enough to make you want to go back and do it. What I want to do now is give you the key to the prophets. Um, and everybody's thinking, how are you going to do the prophets in 10 minutes? It's actually, I said before, probably the easiest thing to interpret. I find it the easiest. And here it is. Now, there'll be some complicated stuff in it, don't get me wrong. But here's the key. You have four major prophets, uh, primarily major because of length, but also these typically were nationalist prophets. They were, they were prophets of Israel versus a sect of Israel. Twelve minor prophets, all written between 760 and 460 B.C., so it's a relatively short window of time when you think of redemptive history, pretty short. Um, I mean, really, really short. So let's keep that in mind. Um, and here's the biggest misunderstanding. Everybody, I say prophet, and you think, what? What's, what's a prophet do? Prophesy. What does a prophesier do? Tells you what's going to happen in the future. That's... Just wipe that off. 2%. That's it. 2% of the time. And even there, you're going to see the key to unlock it is that they're not saying anything that wasn't said before. They are going to be covenant executors. What does a covenant executor do? If I die, I have appointed someone as an executor of my covenant, my last will and covenant. What will the executor do? execute my will and therefore the concern of the executor is going to be very 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 meticulous they're going to go back into that document and they're going to read it very slowly and they're going to think what does this person intend what is his or her will think of will now as an effective thing what is his will and what has this person in this contract that we call a covenant said are the terms and stipulations of, of participating in the blessings or curses. And what are the nature of those curses? What are the nature of those blessings? Guys, pick up your Bible before you ever read a, a, a prophet and read Deuteronomy. You will not believe how f- many times the prophets are quoting it or alluding to it. They are executing the covenant, a contract that God made with Israel, especially in this typological sense, albeit ultimately fulfilled by Christ in the fuller eternal sense. And, and so there's your, your key. It's that simple. 
Um, I, I wanted to, I didn't have time to run upstairs and get it. I wanted to bring down a great commentary by Stewart, um, Douglas Stewart. And the reason I love it is in the back of his commentary, he has, he's, he's got about, I don't know, 10 or so pages where he categorizes uh, the, the law, the, the Deuteronomy. And he shows the blessings, the curses, the stipulations. He takes them through all these different categories. So if you're reading something, and then you say, "Guy, he seems to be." Lit. Then he that that will be a great tool for you if you don't want to read and memorize all of Deuteronomy like these these prophets did. You take a tool like what Douglas Stewart p- provides, and there's other contexts you could probably find it where he pretty much sets up all those law what they are in these major categorical contexts, and and you go back to that and you'll say, "Wow, there it is." I mean, what did he say? If you if you and this is a, the example that I give you here is. Um, uh, where is that example here? Yeah, the Ezekiel passage. Um, you know, uh, I'm kind of skipping a few things, but if you go to that Ezekiel passage in 20, chapter 20 of Ezekiel, it, it's a perfect example where he is basically referencing Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 10, and 13, then Deuteronomy 28. And this is the passage where when they go into the promised land or into this land, he says, don't go worship God in a way that's syncretistic to the way that the pagans worship God. In other words, the problem in Israel, remember, was they, I, I can't ever remember a time when they stopped worshiping God. And they, didn't stu- and they weren't saying, Yahweh is my God. What they did, for all the reasons we do it, is they began to change the way they worshiped and they changed their theology in order for it to be more accessible easy because you know you're living in a pool of, of culture and how can we make this more accessible to our culture how can we do it how can we begin to syncretize what we do using other means to do it and that was a huge no-no because why you ch- because we because jesus i mean because what god is saying is you're to worship me like no other i'm not unlike another god and so to worship christ in the truth so, I mean, God in truth. So here you have this passage, and this is where he quotes Deuteronomy. Don't you go and worship under every leafy tree in every tall hill. Now, why would people do that? Well, because it's accessible. You don't have to go down to the, to the temple and worship. You are making it accessible. You are changing the, the elements of worship to, to make it feel all the worshiping God I mean, think about the worst case of, of idolatry you can imagine. What was it? Maybe Baal worship in the bull? But go read the passage. They were worshiping God using the bull. It's like adding a sacrament to our worship. We would come in here and say, oh, we're going we're gonna to add some kind of a, a, a bull worship here. And, we're, and, and yeah, it had all kinds of meaning that made it really you know, hospitable to the people. A bull represented fertility. You can get the image here, right? And if you've seen the old images of the Baal, it's, it's, a, fer, it's a fertile bull. Let's just put it that way. And, 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 and looking that way. I know you're saying, How's it? Oh, I saw that vase. What's a fertile bull look like? Well, you know. So, uh, so basically, you know, you had this picture, and the idea was that they didn't live in a sacred, secular context in that day, remember? So they believed that, that if they were to stimulate this image of God who is fertile— that it makes the gods fertile. And that's the basis between temple prostitution and Baal. 
is that was God, Baal was the god, the Canaanite god of fertility. You want your crops to grow? Let's excite the gods. What could be wrong with that? We believe our God's Yahweh. Let's excite him. Taking what you and I can't even imagine now, but it was all very logical because in their culture, that's what you do in your religion. So, first of all, idolatry is always extremely... Um, don't think of idolatry as being like, who would ever do that? It's always practical. It's always... Uh, it, it always made sense in that context. It would have fit the cultural way of doing things. And therefore, there was syncretism. And so that's a great example where Deuteronomy says, look, you go and do this, and I'm going to banish you. The prophets come in. They're doing it. Duh. They believe in God. They actually think God meant what he said. And they're going to say, this is what's going to happen to you. And yes, they would interpret it with a view towards the politics of that day. Here, you see that big empire over there called Assyria? They're coming. That's the hand of God. Here it comes. Just like he said. Or Babylon, here it comes. And so that's the sort of sense that you get there. Um, now, how would you translate that in Christ? What are you looking for in, a, in, some, in an oracle like that? It's coming. Hell. All of that is typology for hell versus heaven, promised land. Exclusion, exiled, outside of the excommunication, you could call it. Um, so that's a, that's a gist, that's the key right there. And then if you get into it, whenever you do the prophets, it's very important then to, to do at least three levels, like we talked about in covenant interpretation before, so I'm repeating myself. But you always start where, where what was happening politically that the scripture tells you was happening, whatever the scripture tells you is happening politically or geopolitically or whatever is important. So go back and find out what's going on here. What, what is the relationship between Israel and Assyria, for instance, and Jonah? That's not, you know, why, why was Israel, why was Jonah going the opposite direction of, of uh, Nineveh? Oh, well, that's right, because Israel was in an adversarial relationship with Assyria. And he didn't want to save Syria. <laughs> he wanted him to be cursed. And so he goes the opposite direction. It all makes sense to you. And so it's very important that you read the, the historical context of the prophets. I mean, the geopolitical everything. Um, the literary forms. The, there's all sorts of oracle types. But I'm just going to clue in on three. It's a covenant law. So we got some lawyers in here. They were covenant executors. They were lawyers. That's what a prophet was. And um, you see it, man. It's all written in ancient covenant, I mean, lawsuit. I mean, there's, there's a literary, familiar literary thing. You could see it in the Bible. You can see it outside the Bible during that time. Here, you know, if you were to walk into a court today and you hear the knock, 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 and what's going to be said, Kip, somebody? What's, the first, what's he going to say? It's in session or something? I don't know. Order, what? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Is that happening here, really? Wow, I didn't know that. That's... Proves I've never been in court, I guess. That's good. But, um, yeah, but there, there would be some things that you would hear, those of you who understand our legal uh, process here, you go, oh, I know what's happening here. This is, a, this is a lawsuit or something. Well, you see all that stuff in the Bible. It's all right there, taken right out of their culture. And so you have the court convenes, you have the indictment, you have the evidence, you have the judgment sentence. It's all there. You can read these passages as an example. That's a covenant lawsuit. 
intended to convince Israel, I've got, I'm, you know, I'm litigating you here. God is litigating you, and you're in trouble, and you need to repent. The woe oracle, again, this is a cry of grief when facing disaster or death, like at a funeral. Example, Habakkuk, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Again, there's going to be an announcement of distress, similar to what would happen in a funeral. You know, you know there'd be this moment of, of, a, of a, an introduction in a funeral where the pastor's going to say, you know, something that says what we're here to do. Um, a reason for the distress, and then a prediction of doom. Those aren't fun oracles. But, of course, there's also the promise oracle, or what we call salvation oracle. Amos 9 is a great example. In that day, I will restore you. In that day, you will be like this. Oftentimes, you'll see doom oracles followed by salvation oracles. And there will be these basic lines of thought. So there it is. That's, that's all you need to know about the prophets, believe it or not. I did it in 17 minutes. Questions? I know there's a lot more to this, but that's what we did when we put this in a Sunday school for 45 minutes. Any questions? Seriously. No kids are here. You can ask about Proverbs or the prophets. Closing it down. Yeah. I would encourage you to take these handouts. I mean, what I would have done and what I've always done when I've taught it before is if you, you just got to go look at these scriptures and you'll say, oh, yeah, there it is. I see it now. You know, and so they're all there, and you'll go, I'm beginning. And the more you do this, the more helpful it will be. Now, as we've said before in this class, guys, don't try to interpret the Bible by yourself. Get a good commentary. Yeah. Were you pointing at something? I'm sorry. So get a good commentary, and uh, we can help you with finding those good commentaries. But let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the day, for a time of worship, and now a time of of learning and instruction, Lord, we thank you that it's a privilege to have your scripture, and it's just amazing how how incredible the scripture is. It's um, it's so so multifaceted and and has so much nuance. That's so beautiful. Yet we know, Lord, that all of it points us to Christ, who who took the divine oracles and fulfilled them in Himself in a way that we could therefore only uh, by faith in Him expect salvation and we thank you for that in christ's name amen uh, that's one thing i would say about the bible kevin and i were talking about the other day or I, maybe craig were you there i can't remember but it's just unbelievable the scripture i hope you're really starting to love it if nothing else happens through this course if you just start going god the scripture is so beautiful but think about these people these people are writing this scripture and and they would go out and chop heads off in the morning and 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 they were, so, they were so primitive, we would say, right? They were so primitive. And look how gorgeous and, and complicated it is. It's amazing. So 